You ready? Yes, sir. Here we go. Today is Monday, August 11th, 2014, and this is episode 79 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me as usual is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you tonight? I'm doing well, and by the way, today marks one year that you've been on the show. No kidding. So I was not aware. Happy anniversary. Was there a party in the break room and I missed it? Well, I I didn't want to tell you, but we ate the cake already. Was it was it good? <laughs> it was, was gr- it? it was great. Well, it's been a good year. I, <laughs> I I want to thank you for having me on the show. What? No speech? All right, fine. Let's just let's just move on then. Moving on. Yeah. Anyway, I, I do want to thank you for uh, for being on the show. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. So. All, uh, all. I think we're up to twenty listeners now. By the way, pleasure is all mine. And if we if we weren't steadily growing beyond our immediate friends and family, I would have given up by now. <laughs> so we're on to third cousins by now. I think that that's true. That's true. Uh, and and by the way, speaking of uh, you know listener growth, uh, if uh, we have indeed had quite. A surge in growth recently. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome and uh, hope you like it. If, if you have any ideas or thoughts, send us an email. Anyhow, let's and get remember, into... Oh, go ahead. This podcast, 100% money back guarantee. Oh, the only one, by the way. If not satisfied. That's right. We'll even double your money back. Wow. It's a limited, Can we do that? It's a limited time offer, though. <laughs> Okay, so getting into stories here. Our uh, our first story is. Have a, we heard from Bob lately? By the way, he, well, he MII. well, I've got. I, I do have a, a a small update from Bob later. Okay, later. okay, later. All right, we'll tease with a Bob update. That's right. All right. All right. So uh, first, our first story comes from Cisco, and Cisco has released their 2014 mid-year security report, and it's a as usual, these are are pretty long reports. I think it's 53 pages. I can't do the whole thing justice, but there are a couple of interesting facts I wanted to point out. Now, they did this um, thing, this thing they called the Inside Out Report, and they apparently surveyed 16 multinational organizations. And, uh, and apparently this wasn't like, you know, a, a phone call kind of survey. It was looking at... I suppose the equipment that Cisco has installed and did some objective tests. So what they found were that 70%, I guess a little over 70% of those 16 customers were found querying dynamic DNS servers. And, you know, which is an interesting thing. And they point out in the article that this is not a, not, not necessarily an indication that something is wrong. And in fact, they, they, they make the point, well, you, you know, there's an increasing number of malicious sites that are using dynamic DNS providers, 
unsurprisingly. Uh, however, there's a lot of legitimate stuff too. You know, we remember back to the big Microsoft fiasco a couple of weeks ago, you know, when, when they shut down uh, no IP for a while. So uh, their point was you should make sure that any dynamic DNS queries you see are legitimate. And while that sounds like great advice, if you're more than a couple of people, that's a really big problem. Um, you know, it, it, it's probably going to change from day to day. And I just, I really don't know how you're going to get on top of that. So I think you're either going to have to allow it or not allow it, or, you know, maybe something in the middle of just blocking new things or, or things that, uh, uh, that you know are, are bad or probably preferably doing the whole whitelist thing. So the next, uh, next stat was 90 over 90% of their, these customers were querying DNS names associated with mail, malware. It's pretty obvious, self-explanatory. However, Bob, on this one, I was talking to Bob about this, and uh, and he wanted me to tell everybody that you have to be careful with this because you can really send yourself into a tailspin if you are relying on IP reputation alone. And uh, and the the story that Bob conveyed to me was that. Uh, his his organization saw um, kind of suddenly a whole lot of traffic to a uh, um, an IP address that their threat intelligence service had told them was malicious, and so of course the assumption was it must be malware, right? Well, uh, Bob Bob being the uh, the guy that he is. Uh, analyzed one of the workstations and didn't find anything and you know to put it back in the service and sure enough it's it goes right back at it so they reimage it give it back to them go starts starts happening again well it sounds like a pretty significant problem and you know sure enough more and more reputation services are 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 indicating that this IP address these systems are talking to are, are is in fact malicious well at the end of the day, Bob's organization spent a whole bunch of money on forensics and reimaging systems and disrupting people's workdays. And what it turned out is that the uh, this malicious IP address was uh, was apparently part of a banner net ad network that was serving up a uh, was also serving up a you know piece of malicious code, but it was also you know, just a legitimate. Enterprise, right? And so, uh, there was in this particular location, there was a, a particular TV show that had become very popular just like that week. And so the people in the, in this office kind of all of a sudden started gossiping about that TV show and going to the website. And that was, in fact, the, uh, the problem. So point is, what was the TV show Bridezilla's? No, no, it was one of the, yeah, well, from what Bob told me, it was one of the dumb um, uh, vampire love things. I, I don't. Oh yeah, well. Yeah. See, I, I was just trying to make a funny, but 
Anyway, go on. It was worse. It was worse. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, p- point is, you, you sometimes you you have to be uh, got to you got to watch what you're uh, what you're chasing after because sometimes you can go down a rat hole. Um, the next let step. Me, oh, go let ahead. Let me also preemptively apologize to those members of our audience who enjoy sparkly vampires. We uh, we apologize for anything we would have said that made you think you're dumb, but. You are. So, Woo. interestingly, um, little war story that I've got is in a previous life, I used to work for a company called Dembala, which is still around and kicking, but I was there pretty early. And a lot of what Dembala did when I was there, this is not the case now, just, but when I was there, the majority of the alerting capabilities was based on DNS traffic. And so we did a lot of these very exact sorts of exercises where we would see DNS traffic that was likely to be command and control DNS lookups or some sort of other malicious traffic. Nothing would agree with us. So we got really good at using things like TCP view and other tools, uh, TCP views from sysinternals to be able to relate back what application or what on the box was relating to what traffic we were seeing on the wire. So, you know, maybe something that, in that situation, you may want to have in your toolkit to say, all right, I understand this box is spewing stuff out. I need to identify what's spewing it out. Now, if it's something really hidden, that's interesting information in of itself. But if you're like, oh, it's somebody's instant messenger, you know, that might help you out, narrowing down what's going on from a forensic standpoint. No, that's that's a great piece of advice. I think that the problem... Bob had was they 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 took the and by the way Dombala may or may not have been the source of uh, of that intelligence from from Bob. Well, this is you know this launches into a fundamental problem with threat intelligence yes. is how do you age it out? How do you know when it's no longer if it was use maliciously, especially in content networks like an ad network. It yes. might be malicious for a week and then not malicious for a month. It's a complicated problem. Right. Um, and yeah. I'm a little frustrated this week, so I'll just say this level of nuance is not what the sales guys at WizBang Security Company understand. And there you have it, people. I just... You gotta be a little more skeptical of this, guys. Yeah, it doesn't mean yep. you don't go track it down. Sorry, I keep interrupting and stepping on you, but you just have to remember it's not definitive and authoritative without more evidence. And that's that was the point I was going to make. That was the, the 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 central problem Bob had was that they they just blindly assumed that because their their intelligence provider indicated that it was malicious that there was no possibility that it was benign so anyway it's just a, a you know a lesson learned from from bob to all of you next moving on uh, 43% of their customers were querying dns names associated with administrative services like vpns ssh servers sftp and ftps servers and i and i guess the reason they threw that into the pot is you know those provide a a covert exfiltration channel out of your network 
Uh, although I will tell you, you know, there's probably is an equal number of legitimate things that could be going on or maybe not legitimate, but maybe not malicious either. So, uh, gotta watch that. Uh, they also pointed out that 100% of the 16 companies had malicious traffic on them and they, uh, they indicate, Cisco indicates that they believed that those networks had been penetrated for some time, which is interesting. Uh, moving on, they, uh, they then point out that Java accounted for 93% of web exploits, which, wow, which is a, which stands in stark contrast to another report that came out about two or three weeks ago from Bromium where, um, Internet Explorer is the new dire threat of the ages. So, um, I, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, the Java still is, is king there. And I think that, that the issue is how you count, right? That's, that's what it always comes down to. And, they're, they're in the Bromium report. Basically, they were they were saying that in the first half of 2014, there I don't think there were any publicly released zero days for Java, but there were two or three for Internet Explorer, and that was what they were counting. Well, problem is people are getting owned left and right with uh, you know with Java exploits that you know from their their two year old two and a half year old version of Java. Right, so this is not a situation where you need some some really new uh, exploit. So, uh, gotta gotta have some skept you know some skepticism when you read these reports. Um, moving on, they point out that uh, media and publishing industries are considerably higher in terms of the instance of malware encounters, which I thought was kind of interesting. They they kind of broke down. By industry segment, uh, all of the, uh, they created a baseline, right? So they broke down by industry segment how often the, the users in these different companies were coming in contact with malware and, um, media and publishing were, I think, almost four times higher than the baseline, which, you know, which seems kind of material. And I think petrochemical and, uh, pharmaceutical were, were second to that, although pretty, uh, pretty far behind. And then, uh, then last, uh, last thing I wanted to point out about this, this, uh, report is they point out the perils of WordPress. But they had an interesting take on it. I mean, a lot of people like to dog on WordPress. By the way, I use WordPress. I like it. It's convenient. Yeah, I know it's kind of a risk, right? But so it was a lot of things. But they point out that the, that the really risky thing is abandoned WordPress sites. That it's really simple for people to set these things up on, you know, free hosting sites and then you just walk away from them. And now it's ripe for the picking. And that's what we see happening in droves. So um you know I don't know I, I would assume that most people listening to this podcast are are probably not uh contributing to that problem, but it is it is something that we are having to live with the the impact of. So, yeah, and one thing you know, for my random sampling, it seems like a lot of the plugins on WordPress seem to be the issue. Absolutely, yeah, and probably far more commonly the problem than than actual WordPress itself. So, moving on, 
This next story comes from the Telegraph, and the story, uh, sorry, the title is "Poorly Trained IT Workers Are Gateway for Hackers." And uh, this is a it's, a, it's kind of a an interesting story. But the sum, uh, the summary is essentially that in the UK, at least, uh, they believe, or the author of this this uh, report believes that there are. Uh, the, the universities in in the UK are not properly teaching IT graduates the ins and outs of security, and and there were a couple of issues I had. You know, they they made the comment that uh, uh, some of I'm going to quote here: some of today's graduates may have an abstract knowledge of info security, but how many of them could spot a dodgy attachment, run a penetration test, or crack a code? Uh, those are three different skill sets. <laughs> totally different skill sets. Very, uh, very, very different. Uh, that's like not 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 to get into hyperbole, but that's like saying a construction worker. Why can't he also wire the electricity, run the plumbing, and do the HVAC system? Exactly. That was basically my thought as well. I, I don't disagree, by the way, with the premise of this article, but I think that was a really bad example in a bad way. I think it shows a fundamental lack of understanding of the nuances of the various skill sets. Yes. To put it that way. Yes, indeed. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that, it, like you, I kind of sympathize. I, I'm becoming more of the mind that a lot of our IT problems aren't going to get better until we we help people understand. I guess I would say IT people in general understand the ways in which IT can be misused. Uh, it, because I think right now one of the big problems I've observed time and time and time again is is this just ignorance about about how things can go wrong. You know, there's just, uh, it, ignorance is the right word. It's just complete and utter ignorance about how these attacks work. And so we keep walking into the same, into the same blender. So, and, and by the way, that dovetails into the next story. And this one comes from CSO online. And the title is cybersecurity should be professionalized. So before we get into that ball of wax and rant-worthy article, I would just say that there should be fundamentals of security taught to most IT graduates, right, for whatever sort of program. Mm -hmm. If you're learning to code, you should be taught about the top five common coding mistakes that lead to exploits or something like that. However, here's my challenge with this. I'm not also a huge fan of only being taught this in university and never touching it again. This stuff ages out way too rapidly. So I think a more useful technique would be the various folks who who run these coding departments or development sites or whatever it may be, having this mindset and continuing to push their team to know about it, developing a secure coding development lifecycle and all these sorts of things where we need to build this into the development lifecycle. Because you can't learn it five years ago in college 
and have it still be prevalent today and useful today with the way things are going. No, that's a, that's a great point. It, it does age out, and you need to keep it current. But the foundations could be taught, right? And you could ultimately at least get these guys to be aware of it. But it's really incumbent upon, in essence, you know, the companies or, or the people or whomever are running these teams to make security a priority in the development life cycle. And that gets into a whole economic discussion as to whether or not it makes sense for these guys to spend the time, the energy, the money, the cost uh, to build security in. That's a good point. And, and I think the other, the other obvious issue is that not everybody comes in through the university system. Right. So, you know, there's that too. That's a very good point. Uh, so anyhow, moving on uh, to the next story, which is very related. And again, it's the title is Cybersecurity Should Be Professionalized. You know, I was just thinking, that would fix this problem. Totally and completely. So this uh, this organization called Pell, and I, uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, what Pell is. I think it's called Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy, came up with a report which and this is a, a really very interesting report. I encourage you to read it before bed sometime. Um, that uh, that essentially encourages the establishment of a national, I think, what do they, what do they call it? A nationally recognized body that would do for cybersecurity what the AMA, the American Medical Association, does for the practice of medicine in the U.S., and essentially, the, the the idea being that uh, being a practitioner would be a licensed profession, and you would have to, you know, pass through some gauntlet of uh, of requirements. And you know, I got to tell you, I think the I think the metaphor of medicine is really the wrong one. You know, if if you if you assume for a second that the premise isn't isn't bad and, and unworkable. I think the much more apropos comparison would be uh, professional engineering and, and and possibly architecture, right? Where you 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 know if you want to uh, if you want to build a bridge or if you want to design a house or something like that, you know you got to have a professional engineer sign off on on the blueprints or the diagrams or or what have you and and that person's reputation and license is at stake for uh, you know for the design they came up with the problem is and and they in fact bring this up in the articles that this is such a rapidly changing space that I, you know I, I think um, i think it's kind of unworkable to think that you could have that kind of accountability my question is what's secure well, exactly. Let's go back to your point about architects, right? They have a code they're building against. Uh, must maintain this amount of weight per square foot, uh, survive these sorts of winds, this sort of thing. Uh, you know, we're trying to build something for people to survive when bulldozers are butting up against them on a regular basis and trying to get through, right? So how do you judge somebody's efficacy when they're up against a skilled and motivated adversary? Where, where techniques are evolving, right? I mean, think about to, to carry your, uh, your, your idea forward, you know, think about being a, being an architect or a, you know, civil engineer trying to design a structure when the nature of earthquakes 
are constantly changing in, in, drama- sure. in dramatic ways. I'm not saying it couldn't possibly be done, but then let's go to the next step in that equation and say, all right, meanwhile, you don't control your own budget. Right. So now who owns the liability? Yeah, that, see, that's the problem. That, that is, I mean, I think that, that's the expectation is that this creates, you know, it's a kind of a double-edged thing. On the one hand, you, you create this, uh, this army of people, which, which kind of is at odds with one of the premises of this whole thing is that we need more qualified people. Well, yes. you don't get more qualified people by raising the bar, which, you know, I think well, we can all say it, you know, it makes sense that. We, I think the TSA taught us that you don't professionalize until you federalize. <laughs> so clearly, all. InfoSec workers should be government employees. I think that's what the TSA has taught us, right? Oh my goodness, I, I don't, I don't even know where to go <laughs> with that. But the point being, isn't also incumbent upon an organization to hire, maintain, fire people? So, isn't this sort of taking away the responsibility, or I shouldn't say taking, ceding the responsibility to a third party? Is this indicating that companies are are having trouble hiring properly? Is that the problem? I guess I'm trying to understand. Are they trying to address that there's some sort of large level of malfeasance and blatant incompetence in the security field? Or are they trying to address a lack of competent people that we need to train more of them? Well, I would infer two things. One is I think there is a perceived lack of competence. Which, which is kind of hard to debate, right? I mean, there are a lot of shysters and a lot of, you know, people like me that drive a garbage truck all day and then I come and do a podcast, right? Um, but Scott, Scott Adams would be proud. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Glad you got it. Um, <laughs> then, uh, then there are, you know, then there's the people who want to enter the field. Who need a, you know, who, who need more of a very clear, you know, if, if you, if you do these 40 things, you know, you're going to come out, you're going to have a certificate and you're going to, you know, you're going to be hired by the, by the hospital as a surgeon or whatever. Um, I, I do think that exactly what you mentioned is the case that there is an assertion that people are not hiring effectively. Because if we were hiring effectively, this wouldn't be a problem. But then you can kind of say, well, you know, is what about doctors, right? I mean, would you put it, would you leave it up to hospitals to hire competent doctors in the absence of the AMA? And you know, what about professional engineers or architects? And I think it's a, it's a philosophical argument that can tie you up in knots for, for days, right? It could. And if we want to keep going down that path, not everybody needs to be a doctor. Right? We need nurses, we need nurse practitioners, we need specialists, we need all sorts of other stuff too. That's a great point. And I was trying to think about how that slots in, right? Because at, at, at some level, this is a really complicated thing because, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really mesh well with almost anything because, you know, the, uh, the developer of your web application doesn't need to be a certified cybersecurity whatever, <laughs> right? Um, 
and so so at some point you kind of think about the developer is kind of like the you know the bricklayer at a job site i mean the the closest i think we have to this for a while was a CISSP. love it or hate it it was yeah, the yeah. best known biggest talked about CERN. And there are people, well-known people, well-respected people, who hate the CISSP with a passion. And I would agree. I, I, I don't think it's relevant. I don't think it stayed relevant. I think politics came into play. I just, I'm not saying that I have a better way, but I don't think the people who want to do this kind of overarching professionalization understand all the complexity involved. And they can argue, well, it's the same with doctors, blah, blah, blah. But I just don't see how that could be highly effective and useful. I'm not 100% against it, but I just don't see it being workable. Yeah, I, I don't either. I don't think a lot of people see it being workable. You know, in, in concept, it, it it strikes a chord with me just because of the people. I, I see a lot of people... Um, who this who this would help weed out, <laughs> and, and so you know. I True, see, but I but shouldn't they be weeded out? Shouldn't they be weeded out by their employer, or is that employer going? You know, it's the best I can do right now. Uh, well, I, that's I I don't know. Right, I don't know. That's a good question. Right? You know, if you go back to medical practice again, because they opened that door when they put it in their article, there are a lot of quote unquote underserved communities that your uh, you know, medical school debt can be waived if you go work at for five or ten years. So that seems to me, well, there are places in the medical industry where uh, there has to be extra incentives to get people to come work there. So if we have a problem with quality and quantity, maybe we should go back and look at a free market solution. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have the answer. I, I can tell you, I don't think. Um I don't think this is going to work anytime soon. I think just the the rapid pace of of evolution in the industry itself negating anything else will keep this from happening. So I, I concur. I, I think they're addressing the wrong problem though. I, I think I'm more often seeing a lack of staff and budget than I am a lack of skill set or professionalism. Yeah, I go with you there. Yep. All right, we we think think we kicked that one in the teeth to, <laughs> enough. All right, so our next story is also from CSO Online, and by the way, they they honestly did not leave a bag of money on my doorstep because there's lots of C oh shoot. Um, anyway, uh, CSO Online: How hackers use Google in stealing corporate data. So uh, the story here is that FireEye came across another. Camp, uh, rat campaign, and they call this one Poison Hurricane. And someday I'm going to get a job naming these things. It's going to be awesome. I look forward to that. It'll be a good career for you. It's going to be awesome. So, um, so essentially they, uh, they, they observed, uh, a campaign where some bad guys or bad guys and girls were spearfishing victims and they were installing a rat called Kaba and then in turn that was uh, stealing all, the, all their documents and uploading it to a CNC but the way in which uh, they were talking to their CNC was a little clever um, what the, the attackers had done is 
um, a couple of kind of creative things. First off, they registered for free DNS accounts, uh, DNS server accounts on Hurricane Electric, which is a pretty prominent uh, name in the internet world. Uh, and, and so if you, uh, if you're running a network and you see DNS queries going to Hurricane Electric, you're probably not going to think a whole lot about that. And, uh, what they took advantage of is that Hurricane Electric doesn't, at the time at least, didn't limit what domains you could add, right? So they, they didn't check to see that you were trying to add, let's say, Microsoft.com or Adobe.com or, you know, something like that. And, um, and so they essentially created some shadow domains for otherwise legitimate sites that went to servers they controlled. And then their rat used these alternative DNS servers to find their command and control. And so if you were looking at domain traffic, or DNS traffic, you would see these compromised systems making queries to what looked like legitimate sites and uh, and and they were being queried to what appeared to be legitimate DNS servers very clever and and it's really clever and the whole idea is if you're you know again if you're if you're a diligent company and you're watching your DNS logs you know you might miss that so or if you have a number of tools out there that are meant to watch for nefarious DNS activity including aforementioned Dabala there's a bunch of others out there that do it. Uh, yeah, this is incredibly clever. And it's one step above the hacker setting up their own DNS and doing the same thing, which you could do, right? It's, it's in essence, basically, instead of being recursive, you can say, look at my local host file, in essence, first. They went one step further by using a known good, quote-unquote, DNS service that was not so good because they didn't think about this possibility. <laughs> That's right. So, so instead of, you know, going to update.adobe.com and that being resolved out to whatever is actually out on Adobe's root servers, I could put any damn IP address I want in there. Exactly. Exactly. And you wouldn't think twice about it no. if you were, if you were watching the logs. You, so, you know, I started to think about what, how would I defend against this? How, you know, what, what kinds of mitigations would you have? And, there's one obvious one that most people should probably be doing already, and that's proxying all their DNS. Yes. Now, you, sh- you shouldn't be allowing your workstations to communicate out to the, uh, you know, to the great wide internet, uh, on its own. And, uh, and that would, that would help, right? Because now your, your DNS server is not going to be fooled. So, you know, if, if they make a, if they try to make a query, it's going to get, it's going to get go to the real address, and if well, they do try to go out to some, you know, rat directed uh, DNS server, you should be looking for that, just like you're looking for SMTP, you know, outbound SMTP, absolutely. because that's probably an indication that something's up. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, understand there are attacks that can be done against DNS servers to poison them. So keep in mind, you still have to defend your own DNS server from various random attacks uh, to redirect the traffic. But yeah, I 100% agree. And yeah, you should be looking for drops of DNS traffic. Could be most of the time, it's just misconfigured boxes. You know, people uh, sort of launching their own servers without talking to IT. It's something I used to see a lot. Uh, 
But it could also be that malicious code looking for a way out. That's right. That's right. You know, it's it's really interesting if if uh, if you are responsible for IT in an organization and you don't currently uh, filter up on traffic, it can be really eye-opening when you start. And and, uh, and I'd encourage you to start start small, you know, start with uh, SMTP and see what you see. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, you'll freak out at first. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's sort of Don't do it on a Friday. <laughs> I'll just say yeah. that. You're going to have to do a lot of investigation to understand what's really going on, but it'll make you a better admin. That's for sure. Exactly. Um, the other part of this that, that was interesting is the Google portion. And this is kind of a little bit of link bait, right? Because they're talking about Google, uh, the Google developer site, the Google code site being used for some command and control hosting, in essence. Yeah, but this is the same as any cloud service, right? The, the malware is going and looking up at a defined spot up on Google Developer for information. It's not that Google was really doing anything wrong, per se. It's really difficult to hold Google accountable for knowing this sort of stuff and stopping it. And believe me, I'm no friend of Google. Um, it's just it's a little aggressive to say... Yeah, I mean, they could it could have been GitHub or Subversion yeah. or Dropbox or I mean, Facebook. Yeah, it could have been anything. So uh, they also were doing something kind of interesting where they were doing sort of a mini DNS that they had built too, where it would come look at Google Developer with a certain bit of information and get a redirect from the Google Developer site to whatever the real CNC site is. So uh, not exactly DNS, but DNS-like services. Interesting. All right, well, moving on. Our next story is also from CSO. Uh, the title here is PCI Regime as Bread Complacent Tick Box Security Among Retailers Tripwire Survey Finds. Yes. Boy, we've talked about this one quite a lot. And there was some really interesting things that, that made this story resonate with me. So they uh, they did this survey of 400 U.S. and U.K. organizations, presumably that fall under PCI DSS. And they found that 84% of these organizations believe they would detect a breach within three days. And and I want to stop right here because this is why I don't like Ponemon reports, right? And and by the way. Uh, Tripwires, you know, they, they actually kind of go through why this is, you know, they agree with me, right? So the, the point is that that is a belief. However, it is totally in contrast with reality. So if you look at other reports like Mandiant and Verizon and, and others, we know that objectively companies are taking weeks, months, and sometimes years to learn about these data breaches. That's not three days. Uh, certainly not 84% of organizations. And so in, in my, in what I see is this really highlights the, the, the problem of asking IT people what you think about an IT problem. Because you're not getting the real answer. You And, and so in, to me, this, this kind of points out the really obvious dichotomy, you know, you've got to be careful when you take take in these surveys that companies throw out there, right? This is, uh, you, you can get some crap. So 
kind of moving on. Uh, they they also found that the same 84% were confident in their ability to detect malware, which, you know, I don't know what to say about that. Two-thirds were confident in their ability to detect unauthorized access to network shares or network resources. And, uh, and then three-quarters said that PCI DSS accounted for most or all of their security program spend. Uh, so not a not a great thing. Now they, they in the article they point out that uh, compliance has become a psychological crutch for uh, for a number of uh, for a number of organizations, and that the problem is that it's probably pretty obvious. You follow a PCI and you think that you know you're good until you get owned, and then you realize that it wasn't it wasn't comprehensive. The other problem is. Uh, and what they point out is PCI only is only applicable to cardholder data, and most organizations go to great pains to limit the scope of PCI applicability to only their cardholder data environment, and everything else is uh, you know is kind of outside of that. And you know, again, got to take the survey results with a grain of salt. If most organizations Security programs are built up around PCI DSS, and they've got these outliers outside of PCI. You know, it's not necessarily a great thing. So, yeah, it's frustrating, and this is so predictable. It's something we've talked about over and over again. This is giving a false sense of security, and they feel that they are secure because they're PCI compliant. And in, in many ways, PCI is doing a disservice to the industry because of this. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, it's on, on the one hand, it's it's useful to have a set of minimum standards. But on the other hand, you, you see these just company after company seeing PCI as kind of safe harbor. You know, as long as I can get over that PCI hurdle, I'm, you know, I'm golden. And that's not that's not the case. You still have to run your security program. So yeah, it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. All right, moving on to our next story. This is a kind of an an interesting one. It's a pastebin article, and I was afraid to click this link. <laughs> Are you afraid because pastebin is a hacker site? I, that's where the elite hacksaws go. I, I'm afraid. I you know I I have. Uh, a number of people have characterized Pastebin as a known hacker site to me. Well, anyway. So, anyhow, uh, which which I kind of take exception to. But anyway, um, no, no more than, uh, you know, Gmail is a hacker tool, I guess. But anyhow, um, mm. the, the deal here is that Gamma, there's a company named Gamma, and they make a product called FinFisher. And if you haven't heard of FinFisher, FinFisher is very controversial, right? Question. Are we trying to get sponsorship from them, or are we going to kill that opportunity We're, in this discussion? We are going to kill the opportunity, I think. Okay. I just I just want to make sure I was on the right side, because whenever we bring up a company, I like uh, to know, that's good. Are, are we shilling or anti-shilling? That's, it's, good, it's good that you clarified. Okay. So, so anyhow. The, the anti-shill. <laughs> 
Sure. So anyway, uh, Gamma makes FinFisher. FinFisher is controversial. FinFisher is a product that is marketed towards global governments to spy on people. It's basically spyware uh, targeted or specifically made for governments. And it's in, in particular, it's been kind of uh, controversial because they, you know, they there's been allegations that FinFisher's been used by oppressive regimes like Bahrain. Uh, and, uh, and of course, Gamma's come out and said, no, 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 we don't do that. People stole our stuff. And, well, so what's been happening is that uh, an attacker broke in and stole 40 gigabytes of data including a whole bunch of support records which shows apparently that, in fact, they have been supporting, formally, the Bahrainian government. But, you know, I, I don't want to get into the politics because that's not the interesting part to me. The interesting part to me is that in this Pastebin article, uh, the, the attacker, the alleged attacker, details the methodology he or she used to compromise Gamma. And, uh, and, and I would say in kind of excruciating detail. Um, so it's, it's really worth your time to read if you haven't really gotten into some of the more shady tactics. Um, I don't think there's anything like totally surprising in here. Um, there are some things that I wonder if it really went down like, uh, he or she said it did, but you know, if you, if you kind of if you kind of roll with it, uh, then essentially um, what what they found or what this attacker found is that the uh, the web application that FinFisher was using was a, a somewhat custom application written by a, a third party company, and found that same application or parts of that same application running on a number of other sites, and though he wasn't able to easily break into the Gamma site, he was able to easily break into some others, got the source code for the the web app, found a couple of vulnerabilities, leveraged them to uh, ultimately, uh, first, the first step was he, uh, he was able to get some SQL injection love and run SQL map, pull a couple of customer credentials out, logged in to the support portal with a customer credential he stole, uploaded a web shell, and then had uh, had access to the uh, to the web server through that web shell, and then from there stole the forty gigabytes of data, and apparently he didn't get what he was after. Uh, so I don't. I suspect we haven't seen uh, the end of that. So that it's a, it's an interesting read. To me, it says you know there there are some advantages to using custom applications versus something like WordPress, right? Um, but at the same time, you got to know what the drawbacks are. And you know, in particular, just because it isn't, uh, you know, it's it's something that was custom, what you believe was custom written for you. And particularly if you're going to be a controversial target, you probably ought to get a pen test and, and a, you know, an application review and, and whatnot. So uh, lesson learned there. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's always 
stuff you can do to improve your security. Just bear in mind, pen tests are great, but they probably only may tell you one or two. A good overall application review and vulnerability assessment may better serve you. But a pen test is sexy, right? So, No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right there. I did like how he went through a lot of trouble saying, don't do illegal stuff. I'm not telling you this is, this don't do illegal. But if you're going to be illegal, here's all your precautions you should take. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good uh, read. It's, it's a, it's an interesting read. All right. The, uh, the final story we have tonight comes, it's actually a blog post. And we don't usually cover blog posts, but, uh, this one captured my sentiment pretty well. This whole thing's been weird from the beginning. Yes. And I think if it weren't for Brian Krebs, it never would have got off the ground. Totally. Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay, not not off the ground in professional circles. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So, so we're, of course, talking about the, the earth-shattering news of the 1.2 billion passwords that... Uh, hold security uncovered last week and was all over the news and caused many of us, including Bob, to uh, work late into the evenings. So, um, so yeah, the, this is a, a, a pretty, as it turns out, somewhat controversial story. Um, and the, the blog post I linked to, in my view, links or kind of highlights some of the more concerning aspects. Um, the, so the, the New York Times ran this story about hold security and, you know, hold posted this, uh, the, this blog, or I guess it's a blog post, right? A, a press release on, on his site detailing how he came across 4.5 billion passwords. And of those 4.5 billion, there were 1.2 billion unique Password, user, uh, email address, password combinations, and, uh, and some percentage of those had been obtained through other hacks, potentially like the Adobe hack and eBay, and the rest of them were obtained through some uh, some botnet, where the botnet, the, the zombies running on infected computers were trying to run SQLI attacks and then dumping. Uh, dump, you know, consolidating up and dumping the, the credentials that it gets. And that was, end up, ended up being how they ended up with this 1.2 billion number that apparently came from 420,000 websites. And where it starts to go kind of weird is that, uh, this was used to announce a new service by Hold Security, which I think was called, uh, Credential Guard or, uh, credential integrity service or something like that, where for 120 bucks, you can basically, I would, I would call it, um, you know, like credit monitoring for your email or for your, maybe your password, I guess would be a better way. And, uh, yeah, so, so I think where a lot of people are starting to have trouble is that, uh, you know, this is clearly, a marketing ploy and it's being picked up as, you know, as, as some big attack that was committed by some Russian criminals, you know, and, and in fact, one of the big criticisms is that, uh, uh, Holden, Alex Holden named this 
collective of hackers, Cybervore, which when you look at it is actually just a generic term, you know, it was <laughs> Vore apparently is thief. So, uh, so it, it in, in the, in the end analysis, the, uh, the, the apparent view is that there's really not much going on here other than hold security, starting up a new product offering uh, where you can register your passwords, which is so weird to me. You can, well, this is how you assemble 1.2 billion passwords. Yes. You get people to tell them to you. You can, you can register your password with hold security. And, um, and if they see the, you know, uh, you know, uh, now one, one of the problems I have with this blog post, by the way, uh, and, and I don't think I actually told you what, what the blog was. The blog is, uh, you are not paying attention.com. So there you go. Uh, one of the problems I do have with it is, I would say kind of does some personal attacks. You know, it gets into whether Alex Holden graduated from college. So, you know, I think he loses a little bit of, a little bit of credibility there. Um, you know, I guess the other, the other issue that, that he, uh, the author of this blog post brings up is that, you know, the, the tactics which hold Holden uses to find these apparently is just monitoring you know, probably monitoring IRC channels and Tor exit nodes and stuff like that. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's an illegitimate model, right? It's, you know, you might not necessarily think it's all that useful of a service, but, you know, I, I think at, at the end of the day, he, you know, he's, he's come up with something, whether or not it's, you know, really 1.2 billion or 500 million or something less than that. You know, clearly he's been finding stuff that's gotten some some press. Uh, I think where where I have a big problem is that this was, you know, clearly uh, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say it right. It's clearly a PR stunt by a small company who didn't have a lot to lose, and it went big time, and and here we are. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I'm not. 100% sure. It still seems like there's a piece of two missing here. Uh, but I think the evidence is pointing that way. Well, what do you think about the Brian Krebs thing, though? Because he came out pretty strong in support of this guy at a personal level, and Krebs has a ton of credibility. I, I still, I, you know, I still have my man crush on Brian Krebs. And I, you know, I, again, I think that this Alex Holden guy has, I mean, I, I, I don't think he is malicious or, you know, trying to be necessarily deceitful. I actually think that this is a, an example of a small company being hyperbolic in its marketing. Hmm. And, and just because he happens to be associated with Brian Krebs and, you know, if this were any other company, I, I mean, think about it. You got all these companies that make crazy claims all day long. We are the best whatever. IT company, you know, and you got, there's two people and, and that's just the way the game is played. But, you know, because I think he hit a couple of key buzzwords, it ended up in, you know, in the New York Times and it just went, went crazy from there. Yeah. I, I mean, you've seen the Q and A that, that Krebs posted, right? Yeah. Uh, on, and he, 
this is the only thing that's given me a, just a, just a, a tad of pause or wonder is Krebs is pretty smart and pretty sharp. So I don't know. No, oh, I, I, I absolutely think he is, he is pretty smart and very sharp, but I think there are some things that really don't add up. And you know, this, this I agree. This post yeah, the, goes into that, right? I guess, I guess what I should say is I agree. There's something incredibly fishy about the 1.2 billion. I, I, I don't buy that. I never bought that. And I think I, I agree with you. That this is more a publicity stunt and a launch of a product offering or a service offering. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't understand why Krebs came out and was in such strong support of this guy. And if it's going to hurt his credibility going forward. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's a that's a tough one, right? And and I think it probably I think that Holden probably does have 1.2 billion of something. Right? I just don't think that it is as it is implied, right? Are I we mean, sure he doesn't just have the decimal in the wrong spot? <laughs> it could be could be um did he no. convert from metric to imperial property? <laughs> Well, he is Ukrainian, and they they do use the metric system over there. So you know, maybe that is the problem. But but you know, one of the one of the one of the points this this uh, author blog author brings up is that uh, in in some previous uh, discussions or previous releases, he mentions having uh, accumulated about one point two billion user IDs over the course of like two years. And so, you know, is it coincidental that that happened? And, you know, I actually wrote something up on, on my stupid little blog where I have a problem with the whole concept of the 1.2 billion password number just purely from a practical standpoint. Because if you're, you know, think about it, right? Think about the logistics there. Are, unless you are phishing those passwords, off of like a website or or something like that, where you can actually get the un- the unencrypted, unhashed password. You have a database of 1.2 billion hashed passwords, and they could be hashed in all manner of different ways. And we all know that you know it is totally within the realm of possibility to brute force, uh, you know, uh, password hashes, depending on the ease of which is depending on how long the password is, how, you know, what the, what the algorithm was and, and whatnot. But you also have the fact that there's a 1.2 billion of them, right? It's, it is, uh, it is not a trivial matter. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I wonder, is it 1.2 billion email addresses and hashed passwords, which seems far more likely to me. And if that's the case, you know, some of the, quite a few of those are probably going to be salted. And that means that his, you know, his password deal isn't going to mesh well with the database he's got. So I just don't know what the heck is, you know, I, I just don't know. The context behind the 1.2 billion is totally eluding me. And it's, he's not, I think one of the problems people are really having is he's, it's very opaque as to, what he's actually got. And it's also creating a lot of consternation um, 
I would say amongst the policymakers and executive ranks in uh, in many countries, you know, who are kind of latching onto this because it is, you know, it's kind of feeding into the FUD that's going on right now. Oh my God, massive, massive Russian hacking attack. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe this was something that, you know, just was accumulated over the period of years and was the compilation of you know, dozens or hundreds of breaches that may or may not have been perpetrated by Russians. So that's, uh, that's I guess, what I had to say about it. As to the long-term impacts on Krebs, I doubt it'll have anything. Krebs is Krebs. Is Krebs. Fair enough. So. Fair enough. Anyhow. We, we shall see. I think the takeaway is, you know, assume your password's going to get burned. Make sure you've got multiple... <laughs> you know, multiple ways of rotating your passwords and assume that don't use the same password on every site, you know, same stuff we say every day. That's right. You know, it's, it's one password's on sale this week, kids. <laughs> so we're shilling for them now. Nope, 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 nope. I'm sure at some point I'll piss them off too. Okay. Fair enough. Anyhow, uh, that is the show for this evening. I know we're a bit long. Oh, go ahead. Before we go, just want to uh, say, just as we went to start recording this podcast, news broke about Robin Williams passing away, and as we've been recording it, it's come out that it likely was by suicide, and he's been battling depression. Again, early reports are always suspect, but uh, you know, mental illness is no joke. It's not something you can just get over on your own. Uh, you know, I know a lot of folks in the security industry struggle with different types of mental illness, so. Um, that's been a real problem for, for this industry recently, and it is not a joke. You know, take care of each other. Yeah, and, you know, go get help if uh, if you're struggling. Uh, there's There are options out there, and uh, sad to hear about Robin Williams. It's, um, you know, he's a great actor and a great man, brilliant, and, uh, you know, is a defining comic of my uh, of my generation, so Absolutely. sad news. Funny. So. Funny, funny guy. Hey, there was one other thing. Uh, one of our one of our uh, frequent listeners just briefly. Let's talk about it if you if you don't mind. Uh, sure. Philip Beyer asked the question: If we would discuss our perspective on the value of infosec cons with uh, conferences with attack focus. Oh, that's a huge question. Yeah, it's a good it, question. It is. <laughs> so I, you know, I guess I'm asking. I guess I'm I'm reading into it a bit. And the implication is, you know. Uh, Offensive versus defensive type topics and that sort of thing. So, uh, what do you think? I actually think it's, um, I think it's a great idea, um, you know, for people to go to a mix, right? You know, one of the things I like about DerbyCon and, and probably most of the, the, uh, the security conferences these days have different tracks. You know, they'll have a defend it, they'll have a break it, they'll have, you know, whatever. Um, I think it's, I think it's very valuable, as I, as we talked about earlier, I think it's very valuable for people to understand the ways in which, uh, you know, these attack techniques can work. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really good sometimes to step out of the whole defense mindset for, for a little bit and take a look at how the attack mode works. And, and the conferences are a great way to do that. And I'm not saying that people have to become, you know, have to spend the time to become refined 
pen testers or red teamers or, you know, exploit writers or reverse engineers or, or what have you. But having the, the concept of these kinds of attacks, uh, I think is, it only makes us better as security people because we have a better, we, if we understand those techniques, even at a high level, we can do better at our jobs, at least in my in my view. And again, the conferences I think are a good venue for that because you get to you, know, you get to hear uh, some pretty cool stories that will get your gears turning. And usually, in my view, at least, uh, when I go to those conferences, you know, it's kind of immersive, and you know, you're you're, you're at least for me, at least, um, you know, I. I'm really, uh, I, I, I really absorb it. I really suck it all in. So, do you think the conferences are too focused on the sexy attacks versus the boring defense? Um, yeah, I think so. And it's it's hard not to be, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all about marketing, right? <laughs> you know, I could uh, I could give a you know a, a pretty cool talk about how to. You know about not um, not bridging in from your internet DMZ into your internal network, and, and that's a really uh, very good thing. But there probably be two people in attendance. Everybody would be over, you know, looking at the latest way to break into iOS or you know what what have you. So um, it's a tough. That's a tough thing. Uh, I, I you know I think there there needs to be um, you know a balance, I guess. And you know it's the whole the whole sexy defense is you know a may may that just comes and goes I guess. Yeah, you know I guess in following up on that, and I think you answered this pretty well. Do you think there is a lot of demand for defensive talks versus offensive talks, and therefore, do you think that? Most of the researchers and, and hobbyists and those are spending all their time on the attack side, and only companies and businesses and VC funds are spending time on the defense side. I, I don't see, at least that's my take. I mean, do you see that? I I do. I actually think that is. I mean, it's it. Look, the it, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of personal defense interest, right? You know, the 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 uh, from a from a hacking perspective at least i think the the really cool uh challenge tends to be in getting into things right and it's it's much less uh, it's much less objective and quantifiable uh and and i would say less satisfying in my experience at least when you're when you're thinking about defending uh at least on a personal level right i mean doing it in the context of a company i guess it can be a little different right but i don't see a lot of people tinkering around in their basement trying to figure out new ways to protect their you know their uh their webcam or or whatever but they certainly are trying to break in this stuff so i think there's some of that um i you know i i, I don't know uh, what what do you think i think i pretty much agree with most of what you said um I think the defensive side is, in essence, more corporatized. I think because there's so much business around the defensive side in terms of vendors offering their wares and companies buying them, there is some implication that a lot of that is covered, quote-unquote, by the vendors and their view of reality, yeah. as well as the professional organizations 
the the frameworks that exist, the this you know the various compliance needs that exist. There's sort of a, a plethora of information out there on the defensive side. Are we doing a good job at it? No, I don't think so. Um, and I think that there's a natural tendency to be much more wowed by the attack side. Absolutely. It resonates are, with people. Yeah, we're fascinated by that. We're, at least most folks, I think, in this industry are fascinated by that, by the attack side. And I think you can derive a great deal of satisfaction and do a good job on the defensive side. I think the natural inclination of most of the people who sort of have, well, this is a bad thing to say, but the hacker mindset, the hobbyist mindset, the people who would have been part of the homebrew computer club, you know, people like me who got on the internet with packet radio software, you know, over a 9600 baud modem or slower 2400 baud modem to figure out what was out there and what could be done. That is a lot more intrinsically fascinating and viscerally interesting to us mm-hmm. of how you can use something in a different way or subvert it to your will without being a bad guy. So I think cons that need to attract an audience are likely to focus on the offensive side mm-hmm. uh, who want that sort of market. But, you know, if you look at the classes, there's a lot of classes that are that are very well populated that are on the defensive side. Sure. You look at Sans, you look at that. But I've, I don't, I think people think of that as a more boring thing. So it doesn't get the flash, it doesn't get the flair, it doesn't get the sex appeal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think they both absolutely have a place. I am not a good uh, attacker. I'm not a good red team guy in execution. But I, I think of myself as a really good defender because I understand the concepts and the capabilities without necessarily being able to execute it of the bad guys, I think, right? I, I, I never try to go in with assumptions that gear can only do X, Y, Z because that's what it was designed to do. And I don't think I would have that mindset if I hadn't spent so much time watching in awe what some of the attackers can do and trying to understand it and trying to understand the failure points and try to understand, okay, this is how that broke. I, I see the assumption that went into this design that failed. How do I get, you know, even if I can't replicate that attack, I can learn from that attack and learn to defend against it, even if I couldn't code it myself. Yeah. Um, some argue that to be a good defender, you have to be a good attacker. That may or may not be true. Uh, it's probably true, and I'm probably only a mediocre defender. But I've learned a lot watching attackers without being able to replicate their behavior. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that, um, I think that cons are, are generally a good thing from both perspectives because I, other than, other than the classes, like you said, there isn't a lot of sharing that goes on on the defensive side. And, you know, that was one of the things that I, to be transparent, right? That was why I started this, podcast was there was just a just a kind of a void of of kind of open sharing of different strategies and tactics for defense for defense you know and other than the platitudes that the uh that vendors will bring forward or the the really high level frameworks you know let's talk about nuts and bolts how are people getting known what are what are what can we do to stop it that so and i think that's uh that's something that I like about conferences in addition to, you know, the sex appeal of the attack. So, 
Yeah, I mean, you brought up a great point, which is that this was kind of your original vision behind this podcast was talk about ways we can learn to defend better. Exactly. Uh, Which is why we try, sometimes, I don't know if I do a good job at it, but try to bring these stories back to what can we learn, right? What can we take away from this as as a way to improve our security? Yep. All right. Well, I think uh, I think we'll call it a, a night, and I uh, appreciate everyone listening. I appreciate your time, Mr. Kellett. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we love getting feedback from our listeners. Uh, we joke, you know, that, that we only have a, you know, a handful of listeners. But honestly, it's it's turning into a decent-sized community, and, and we love the feedback. We love to hear what you like, what you don't like, questions like we just got from Philip. Happy to talk about, happy to get into we are certainly not any authoritative source or anything, so we love to hear other people's viewpoints, and we can all share and learn. And so, please interact with us. We we love to to get that. Absolutely, and and to do that, by the way, you can uh, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity dot org, or you can uh, hit us up on Twitter at defensivesec. And uh, you can find the show notes and all of the back episodes on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the the uh, antics of Mr. Callet on Twitter at Lurg. And you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, I bid you adieu for another week. Take care. See you guys. Bye.